Welcome to the RSP Cast Film and Data. I'm Mal Waldman, joined by Adam Arstead. Adam, always good to see you. Should be a fun show today. Yeah, hopefully. <laughs> yeah. Ninety percent of the time, it works every time. That's right. There you go. Perfect. So today, I think we're going to talk a couple of things. You know, more from a um, fantasy perspective, and then I just thought it'd be fun to talk about some things that are just you know, off topic of, with football. Sometimes it's fun to just have some life conversations about things. And, and, and I, th I thought you would be a, a, a great person to have conversations about from this space. Um, mainly because I think that, um, you know, I, I admire the perspective that, that you take, how you also look at, um, how, so you approach your, your social media and, and, the conversations that you're willing to have with people and I like stalking your feed so that's kind of where some of this came from but uh you know today we're going to talk about you know trades in leagues how we handle them um you know some who's overrated or underrated at quarterback in the dynasty space right now and then just talk about who were some of our influential teachers and mentors um or people that we've just found helpful on some level in life. And, and then a, a topic, just learning to be yourself and, and, and we'll go from there. So just to begin, just kind of more on the lighter side of all that, let's, you know, where's your, what's your stance in leagues about handling trades? Do you, are you, are you in the camp of all trades are fair or that we take it? that we manage it as if all trades are fair or are you more in the cap of we need to have a committee and we need to vote on trades and and make sure that it passes muster with the league you know either in certain circumstances or all circumstances yeah this is an advantage for me and this is a big reason why i don't usually play in big money leagues um just because I think fantasy football when there's a lot of money at stake is different than fantasy football when you know there's there's other stakes not necessarily smaller stakes ego pride um you know wanting to validate your process these are all actually very high stakes as well but they're not monetary stakes and people get like even good people even nice people even reasonable people even me i'm not saying i'm good nice or reasonable but but they get silly and they get crazy when there's a lot of money involved the problem with letting other owners vote on trades is they are not disinterested parties, right? You can say, have these high-minded ideals that you shouldn't be voting your interest here. You should be voting the league's interest. But if you give people the opportunity, they're going to vote their own interest. And, and you know, I can't really blame them. We, we are self-interested creatures, and we can't just shut that part of our brain off. Um, so I don't think that's a that's a really good idea unless you just hate trades and want to make sure none ever happen. Because in any given trade, the reason these managers are deciding to make this trade is because at least one of them thinks that it makes their team better. And if the league agrees, the league's going to be like, why would I make my rivals better? It, there's a strong bias towards disallowing trades if you let managers vote on them. Uh, so I don't think that's really a good solution. I am a big um, empower the commissioner kind of guy. That's my preferred solution. I favor leagues with, um, I don't I don't prefer like the really precise rules. I prefer broad rules that have a very clear intent and spirit. Um, and my league has a, a sportsmanship rule that says like, look, we want good sportsmanship. If there's something that's not allowed here, but like you think about it and you're like, okay, this is, this is poor sportsmanship. This is anti-competitive. This is whatever. Then it's disallowed. Right. We've got you know what the spirit of the rules are where these rules exist because we're trying to make the league as fun as possible for everyone. And we, we need some rules to do that. Um, if there's something that's not covered here, but it seems fishy, the commissioner's free to do whatever he wants at his own discretion. And that requires having a commissioner that you can trust to put the league's interest above his own. Um, and. I've been doing it for a while in my league and my league mates trust that, you know, I've had to make some calls. I've had to make some hard calls where something got screwed up. Um, you know, when we switched from the 17 game, 17 week season to the 18 week season, I forgot to switch the schedule 
on the league management software and we get to week 11 and all of a sudden we notice it that the playoffs are scheduled to run weeks 14 15 16 and week 14 is a bye week and i have to make the call do we play the schedule as we've as it's been set up for the past 11 weeks that nobody noticed or do i change the schedule more than halfway through the season you know do we is it fair to send somebody to the playoffs with their top players on bye um and, and I have to make a call, and it's a situation where there's no good call, but I tell everybody in my league that I'm going to make the call that I think is going to be best for the league. Um, and not sometimes it's not the call that's best for me, and I, I have a history of showing that I'm willing to do that. Uh, like a lot of my preferences in fantasy football, it's hard because it doesn't scale. You know, like just find a commissioner that you trust is kind of facile advice because if you have a commissioner you trust that's great and if you don't have one how do you get one you know how do you build that trust i don't know it, it the solution isn't readily obvious but my preference is strong commissioners that are empowered to handle all sorts of situations and then when you're one of those commissioners um i like to give as much leeway as possible for managers to manage their team as they see fit as long as they're making a good faith effort to improve their team across some some metric and maybe that's maybe a manager's a cincinnati bengals fan and he's trading patrick mahomes for joe burrow not necessarily because he thinks it makes his team better but because he thinks fantasy football is more fun with his favorite quarterback on his team i'm okay with that you know if if a guy's petulant that something didn't go his way and so he's trading patrick mahomes for you know, Joe Burrow just to spike the league or, or even worse, you know, trading him for like Daniel Jones just to, to spike the league. That's not cool. Um, and as a commissioner, you have to be able to step in and unwind. And typically, if a manager is doing something like that, the, the, the real solution is we got to get this manager out of out of our league because it's only a matter of time before he does it again. So anything that requires a commissioner to step in with a heavy hand like that should also usually be paired with um, if not removal of the manager, at least putting them on a very short leash and, and making sure they understand that removal is very much on the table. Yeah, I love I love that perspective, Adam, because I think at the end of the day, you're, you know, regardless of whether your league is a bunch, you know, people listening and you're in a league and you're a younger person or you've been doing this for a while. And the people who are man, who are part of your league are all adults who have been in adulthood for a, for an, a number of years, or people just entering adulthood or on the verge of adulthood. Um, you know, there's a point where, just like anything else, any relationship with people, you have to have good boundaries. You know, you you have to and you have to exhibit a, certain boundaries for things to work. And there's a point where there's some people that if, if you discover that there are people or a person, and usually it's one person in particular who doesn't have good boundaries in terms of how they, how they um, conduct themselves in, in a league setting, you're right. I mean, I think it does. Can it's going to continue at some level? They're going to get away with that and feel justified to continue doing something. And then it's and at some point, the rest of the league has to have the boundaries to understand that. At very worst, at the end of the day, if this league isn't working, you're not going to be happy in this league. You know, it's going to be a source of frustration. You're not. The morale's going to be low. You're not going to enjoy the experience. And it's better to deal with the unpleasant aspect of having to say, listen, we, we may have dealt with this person socially, we may deal with this person socially, but it's not working here. And if the person, if the relationship isn't strong enough for the person to get over their anger of getting booted out of a league for their behavior and being called on it, um, then so be it. You know, I think that there's sometimes you... Sometimes you have to go through some of that unpleasantness because you don't, if there's, you know, one person doesn't win out over an, the other 11 or the other, four, you know, 13 or the other 15 in your league who are just not going to be, you know, where eventually you may just have people drop out of it anyhow. And it, it, so I think that it's a, it's an important thing that it, 
to, to me, I love the competition rule because to me that and having one commissioner, because generally you can find one person. You can usually find one person who you know that people can trust to make as fair or a well-intentioned decision um, from a basis of, of experience and maturity um, to make it work. And if they, and if you can't, then is it really worthwhile being in that league? You know, and and I think that for some people that's scary because their leagues are, can also be highly, so can be filled with their social circle. And there are people who are afraid of um, creating conflict in those social circles. And we all come from different backgrounds. So sometimes people, there are some people who are in the midst of learning how to um, negotiate social conflict in a positive way and, and in, a, um, in an effective way. And then there are some people who are very used to being able to do that. And some people who've never done that in a, in a um, healthy way in their entire lives. And so, you know, it does require, I think, sometimes, sometimes it just works with everybody's in the same place and you, and, you know, in terms of maturity or still having maturity ways to go with maturity. And sometimes it all just works the way that is. But at some point as you grow or other people in your league continue to mature, um, emotionally, sometimes you grow in a different path than other people and you have to, and sometimes you, the best thing for you or other people is to learn this isn't the league for me if we can't resolve it. And that's the tough decision for a lot of folks. But I think at the, but at the same time, you know, for me, I, I always preferred it as having a strong commissioner, but basically putting in there and saying, listen, we're going to, um, we'll, we'll have a competition rule, but until then, until something seems to violate that all trades are fair um, because you just never know. Sometimes the, you know, the old maxim is true. Sometimes that what you perceive to be an unfair trade um, on one side may very well wind up being unfair the opposite, like two, three years later um, and work out in that fashion. Um, and then also it can be a good deterrent for everybody. You can say, you know, if you have mostly mature folks on there and somebody makes a, an unfair deal, the idea of making an unfair deal, um, and it weighing down on every, on the league and creating, um, a drama and a mess where there's just, you know, there's nothing worse. I, I just, am, I'm leaving a league this year that, um, I, it's really not any fault of the person making the trade and the trades, um, going there, but I have other, um, I have other things that I'm going to have to commit to. So it, it, but one of the things, you know, when I, you know, I'm leaving the league and, and, and it, one of it is just to make a decision to make it helpful to solve a, a trade problem with the league and saying, listen, I've got other things I got to do. Take my team, take the, another team that's in question here. That was that where the, um, some of these trades that come into question happen and just have getting two new um gms and you know my team's strong this team's a little on the on the weaker side have a you know figure out what you're going to do do a draft you know do a draft with those two teams split it apart start from scratch there don't reverse trades from two three years ago you know don't, don't get into that mess because i mean there's nothing worse than like looking at your email and literally having two pages filled on a topic from different people, you know, within the span of like four hours and thinking this is just gonna, you know, this is not totally unnecessary and feelings are going to be hurt and people are going to be, and there's going to be resentments that aren't even going to be like, it just creates a whole, whole mess. And some people like that drama or thrive. Maybe they don't like it, but they're used to it and they kind of thrive on it on some level. But, it, but to me, I think it's a, it's just a very, it's just the older you get or the, you know, the more you see the, the less you want to deal with that kind of behavior. Yeah. I, I want to say 
as somebody who loves small leagues, I do want to give a shout out to my uh, my buddies and eight and ten teamers out there. I know you were neglecting them. You were erasing their I existence. Was. But I, I was. I love yeah. the small leagues, too. I love them. Um, and for me, the thing is, there are some aspects of fantasy football that are zero-sum, unavoidably so, right? The pool of championship odds is fixed. And anything I do that improves my odds is going to necessarily decrease everybody else's odds. I'm taking those odds from someone else. Getting hung up over the stuff that that zero sum, like that's not worth it. Everything's going to help. Everything that helps somebody is going to hurt somebody else in that dimension. But there's aspects of fantasy football that are not zero sum, where like I can make things better for me and for everyone. It's more fun to play in a league where trading can happen and does happen than it is to play in a league where trading cannot happen and never does happen. So any decision we make that makes trading easier makes things more fun for everyone. Any decision we make that makes trading harder makes things less fun for everyone. So that's my goal as a commissioner is to maximize the things that are not zero sum and just the stuff that zero sum, it's going to work itself out. Yeah, I think so. I think that that's, I think that's a great way of capping that off. So let's talk a little bit about quarterbacks. Who do you think in the dynasty space right now are some of the more overrated and underrated um, players at the position? Uh, I think dynasties, and and for years and years I've been saying this, quarterbacks in general are overrated, are, are underrated. Um, you know, we kind of got into the zero quarterback thing, and you look at the history, like good quarterbacks over the course of their careers provide a ton of fantasy value. Like maybe on a year-to-year basis, there's ups, there's downs, but guys like Peyton Manning and Drew Brees and Tom Brady, like if you could draft, if you if you had a startup draft, knowing what you know now, and you could go back to like the mid-2000s, all of those guys should have been first-round startup picks. And we've got quarterbacks today that are, I think, the next generation of Brady and Manning and um, like Patrick Mahomes for more, like, it, I, I watched Dynasty ADP from, from Dynasty League Football, and he's going in, like, the third round of startups and has been for years, and it, th- this is insane. <laughs> it's insane. How is – you got the next Peyton Manning. Like, I've never been more sure that a 26-year-old was going to wind up in, in the Hall of Fame than I am with Patrick Mahomes. Yeah. And people are taking, you know, like – I, I don't even, I'm not going to insult the guys who are going over him because they're good players too, but they're not Patrick Mahomes. Yeah. You know, his tight end, Travis Kelsey usually goes above him. And Travis Kelsey is amazing, but Travis Kelsey is 32. <laughs> right? right? Like, <laughs> how is this happening? You know, Josh Allen, the advantage he's providing, I was, I was trying to make a trade for him the other day. And the other guy said, like, for me right now in a one quarterback league, Josh Allen is my 1.01. In, in dynasty startups. And I'm like, that's totally fair. I wouldn't have him there, but I think he's a lot, a lot closer to the truth than the like no quarterbacks in the first two rounds of startup guys are. Um, so quarterbacks in general, I think are very underrated in dynasty just because the year to year fluctuation masks the fact that good guys stay good for so long. Um, and they just provide so much value over the course of their careers, yeah, even cool. if you're like time discounting future years. For sure, because qu- quarterback to me has always been one of those positions that you anchor for your dynasty team. Like I like to think of it as there are certain positions that that can serve as kind of anchors for your team for years to come. If you have those as kind of the foundation for your team build, you're in good shape. And I found that it's, I found that in the worst case scenario of, especially in leagues, especially in dynasty leagues and full IDP leagues. It's very true. Oftentimes is people get so hung up on taking other positions that the quarterbacks often fall. And so I've, I've had teams that I've either blown up or injuries blew them up. And I'm in that in, I'm in that mediocre space where I don't have the high draft, high enough draft pick to get the, the, the impact player on the surface with draft capital but I'm too, but I'm not making the playoffs. You know, I'm in that, in that, that dead zone. That's just a, that's just a, a, not a fun place to be. And if I'm in that, if I'm in that zone, dead zone for more than, a, more than a year, I start to think, you know, I'm start to think of ways that I can get out of that. And for me, one of the ways that's been able to do that is just collect quarterbacks because at the end, because usually if you stockpile, if you, if you get two or three really good quarterbacks within you know within a two to three year period and they show up and and perform well 
People like to hoard quarterbacks even if they don't pick them as early as they should. And next thing you know, you may have three or four guys in the top five to seven, and now there's a demand for the position, and you're able to trade them for pieces that you would not not otherwise be able to get. And it and and then if and you can wait until that happens and still have an advantage because there's a lot of teams that I would just call them a lot of headless teams at that point who who if they just had that one piece they would probably go from being a um you know go from being an also ran to a, a legitimate contender and they have all these strong pieces but they can't but they don't have that one position that really ma- that's going to really matter for them and it's worked out very well in that facet. And the idea of Patrick, it always makes me laugh because I, I was going to say Patrick Mahomes as well. But it always feels weird to say Patrick Mahomes is underrated. But it is ridiculous in that dynasty space how much he is. Because yes, I mean, just look at even 10 years ago, we could be, you know, people were looking at Tom Brady and saying, well, he's near retirement. He's getting old. And 10 years later, we're still, we're still saying that and there's more validity to the idea because there are fewer years left now. At least that's what we're perceiving. Um, you know, but what if what if a lot of what we're seeing in Tampa Bay, which I would argue is receivers not running the best routes because they're they're not in, in sync with Brady like Russell Gage or the offensive line, while the maybe pressure rates are lower than what they were last year for for Brady, the the type of pressure that's being applied is having a greater um, weight of intensity in terms of disrupting um, what Brady does. And then, in addition to that, just all the two high looks that do create um, a need to be throwing more in the middle of the field underneath. Um, or types of passes where Brady's okay at, but not particularly great at. And you can say that's the case for a lot of the quarterbacks in the leagues in the league right now, based on how there's some of them are struggling with too high looks. Um, and you could say, well, it's not that Brady's gotten bad worse or significantly worse as much as it is the situation at hand in terms of how defenses are playing. So what happens if, he decides to stick around. The offensive line gets better. The receivers have one more year of experience. They're healthier. Um, and Brady returns to that that level that he's more in that top five to seven as opposed into the top seven to four, 14 range. And, you know, that's the... To, and he decides that, you know, he's healthy enough. Why not play another three, four five years three four five years is still like it it's still like an, a whole iteration of like of a dynasty era in most leagues so it for for me oftentimes the older quarterbacks are underrated pretty much every year and then and then also the same thing goes for drafting the guys at the top of their game who are young you know so I, I'm just curious though who would be you know, in addition to anything you want to comment with that, who also who do you think is overrated in the in this space in terms of a quarterback type or situation or even player? Yeah, I mean, getting to your point about like hoarding quarterbacks. I, so I'm in two dynasties right now. They're both one quarterback leagues. In one of the leagues, my quarterbacks are Mahomes, Watson, and Prescott. In the other league, I have um, Herbert and Kyler Murray. And in that second league, I'm busy actively right now trying to trade one of my running backs for either Josh Allen or Joe Burrow. Working hard. It's the same guy has both. And and he he's one of those who likes to run lean with just one quarterback. So I'm, you know, I'm gonna trade a running back who I'm starting on a weekly basis for, you know, a third quarterback. And the reason why is that, you know, if a guy's not putting points directly into your lineup, you know, if he's on your bench, if he's further down, he only has one job in Dynasty, and that's just to maintain value. Right. And the, and the number one asset for maintaining value is future draft picks far and away. But like the number two asset for maintaining value is probably quarterbacks. It, 
I'm looking at like Leonard Fournette versus Joe Burrow. Leonard Fournette's putting points in my lineup right now, but three years from now, Leonard Fournette's dynasty value is going to be basically nothing, probably. Yeah. Right? Maybe three years, maybe four years, maybe five years. You know it's getting closer to the end. Even if he maintains his production, his value is going to go down because everybody's going to say, oh, well, he's 30 now. How long can he, he keep it up? You know, three years from now, Joe Burrow's dynasty value is going to be pretty much exactly what it is today, right? I can use him kind of like a bank. He's a place where I can store value on my roster. And then later, if I have an injury at running back, I've got this break glass in case of emergency store of value that I can cash out at any time. So I love quarterbacks, even in one quarterback leagues. I always tend to run very quarterback heavy builds um, just because it's a great place to park roster value for when you need it later on. Uh, In terms of quarterbacks who are overrated, I mean, I think anybody who's not like the top, one of the top tier guys, um, it's not so much that they're overrated. It's just that the top tier guys are so good right now that it's hard to be competitive if you don't have one of them. Yeah. Uh, If you really want like a bargain basement discount kind of guy, I think Kirk Cousins, since he's such an unsexy name, he can be had for much cheaper than I think his production would warrant. Um, But otherwise, I mean, I'm trying my best to get an Allen a Mahomes, Lamar Jackson, Joe Burrow, Justin Herbert, maybe like a Kyler Murray or a uh, or a Hertz. Um, and if I don't have one of them, maybe I'm taking a shot at like Trevor Lawrence or, um, I mean, yeah, yeah, Trevor Lawrence would probably be the best guy to break into that tier. Yeah, uh, I think Tua is a bit overrated right now because everybody's like thinking about how good he can be with those weapons, but at the end of the day, like. How successful Tua is has nothing to do with is going to have nothing to do with Tyreek Hill and Jalen Waddle. It's all about if he's good, he's going to get his, and if he's not good, he's going to get replaced. Um, and I think there's too much uncertainty there given his cost. Um, so I think he's probably undervalued on net just because I think quarterbacks in general are undervalued on net, but he's he's less undervalued than most of the other quarterbacks. So compared to his peers, I think he's overvalued. Yeah, I think that's a fun one to, to discuss because I think I I agree where he could be overvalued. Um, and I can see where that is because he can be quite generous with some of his throws to the defense and some of his decisions. Um, I do love his um, ability to bait defenses on two-man route concepts. He gets rid of the ball fast in that offense. Um and you, I, I like what I see with the offensive line in terms of its progress to feel like he, he does everything well enough that he's, to me, he's kind of like G, Geno Smith with slightly better weapons. And Geno's playing great football right now. Um, but I, I also bake in his backup, and it's not Teddy Bridgewater, but Skylar Thompson, and so, because I think Skylar Thompson is a highly underrated prospect, and even what I saw the early on, I thought that he played much better than his team played around him in this first start before he got hurt. That, I, and the fact that they kept him and everything that goes on with that story, that I I'm I won't be surprised if he is the 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 backup to Tua. Um, basically heading into next year and if and if Tagovailoa has um continues to have moments of you know poor poor play the I could see the uh the Dolphins go eventually maybe going with a guy like Thompson so while it may seem like certain formats you there's a point where you're like do I really want to have Skylar Thompson sitting on my roster when I when I'm a competitive team and I and we only have so many roster spots, but if there but if you're a team that has the luxury that you have strong players and depth and you have an extra roster spot, to me that's a, that's a place to grow some equity, um, and I think the combination of Tagovailoa and Thompson together could give you some of that, um, where you kind of have that banked in. If it doesn't work out. Thompson's easy to let go of, you know, and, and find somebody else. But if it's, but if it turns into a situation where Tagovailoa struggles a little bit, or you see signs of struggling, then you can, you know, you have a player in a really good situation, at least a, at least what it looks like right now, to take over and grow from there, and then have a guy who could be there for the next 
you know, 12, you know, let's say eight to 12 years, you know, if, if we're being, um, idealistic about it and to the level of, um, realism, you know, some realistic idealism, if you can, if there is such a thing, but, uh, um, you know, so for that, I would also add Justin Fields to the list and only because, you know, when I see Jackson hurts Murray and I'm not a big Kyler Murray fan at all. Um, if I see those guys hanging in the middle of the, of the rankings, you know, in terms of QB one value, they're kind of in, you know, kind of what your average QB one at that point or your midpoint, I think fields can ascend to that. Um, especially even with what the bears have been like lately, how fields has played recently, what the bears are doing to adjust. Um, I think it's only going to get better from here. And I know that that can be dangerous with some teams because I'm sure as a Cleveland Browns fan, I know lots of people have said that for many years about the Cleveland Browns only to find themselves drowning again in their fandom. Um, I'm sure the Detroit Lions fans probably feel that way. New York Jets fans, I think, are about to head down that, that vortex again. So I... You know, but Fields to me, with what I've seen of how he's handled what's gone on, how and both on and off the field, you know, with some of the dysfunction of of the Bears organization, um, I would much rather him have him than say a guy like Zach Wilson. I just I think I I honestly think that they'll be going back to they'll be going back to Joe Flacco. And while I had Jets fans, the ire of Jets fans on. Um, early in the week for making that statement that that'll eventually happen if they can get to a certain win total that might get them a, a wild card spot. Um, while maybe, yes, Joe Flacco isn't mobile and he turns over the ball, he's distributing the ball to his receivers and the signs of, uh, the signs of you know, Elijah Moore wanting to get out of town tells me that, you know, it may not, they may not say directly it's Zach Wilson, but you know, he's on the field. It's not like he's not getting playing time. It's just that he's not getting the ball. And yeah, I understand from a receiver mentality, whether it's a, a healthy mentality, I'm not, I, no, I don't think so. But, you know, these guys are expecting to be bigger parts of their offense. And it's just like if um, there, when you see that there's room to grow in that passing offense and you're not, you're not getting involved in that um, or the quarterback's incapable of doing that, um, you know, it, it becomes hard for them. I mean, I think about the Tim Tebow experiment to a degree um, and people, and there were people who would say, well, why didn't that, you know, they won a playoff game and they, and they were productive with him in this, in this system, at least the, the offense was productive enough to, to keep the, the team afloat. And while you could argue whether that's completely true or not, at the end of the day, there are, I think we're in an era of football where agents run, can, you know, are so influential that, you know, as a receiver, you start thinking about, it's not about winning solely. It's about making money and we can win. This is the extreme where if we win, but I'm not getting stats, then I might not get a second contract somewhere. Or I might not get the second contract at the value that I um, that I'm capable of, and it could be enough money that it would be. It, it might be a difference between guaranteeing that I have generational wealth for my family, and where I'm, you know, I'm looking for work when I get out of the NFL, and that's a, you know, I understand that idea of going. I can't stay here if this is how this is going to work. I mean, like, I'd rather be somewhere else. I don't care if we're going to win a championship because at the end of the day, would you, you know, your your company may have certain goals, but if your company is going to keep employing you, um, even if you don't reach the most, the, the highest pinnacle of the goals that they have set up there, um, but you're going to get, you're going to have a job and going to be able to provide for your family for the next, I know most people don't work in the same job for 15, 20, 25 years anymore, but on the occasions where people can, you're probably going to choose that even if they don't reach that ultimate goal that they had and they're still sustainable. 
and and so I don't really fault anybody when people you know when the idea comes well they were selfish they wanted to be a part of uh you know they didn't want to be a part of a of a champion they didn't want to sacrifice on that level well if they had equity in if they had equity in the team and the and all the marketing sales that they you know all the different um not marketing sales but all the you know the apparel sales that maybe the that that team has um maybe i would i would have a different um i'd feel differently about that you know if they got a stake of stake of ownership or stake of the money on the back end that makes sense but just from straight up salary no you know so yeah it's funny how often fans expect football players to accept working conditions that they they would never accept yeah. right and it's like you know, uh, like the NCAA before the transfer portal, like, oh, you know, you commit to a school, you're locked there forever. Okay, well, once you accept a job, are you locked there forever? Do you never, you know, look around at why is it okay when you do it and not okay when they do it? Yeah, yeah, it's 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 crazy how that is. But I mean, we project, we project so much of what we think is what we want to admire on people in the public space. Um, who are in, you know, who perform in, in the public eye and are held up and held up by the PR machine as heroes. And I think that that's the, that's the thing is we, we have difficulty separating how to admire people for the skills that they have from admiring them as fully dimensional human beings and, and seeing and admiring them for for who they are as a whole person, flaws and all, um, and I think that that's a that's kind of one of the dangerous things about um, how we look at how we look at things as fans, um, you know. So I'm just curious. I mean, I kind of want to go off off top. You know, I'm going to stay on the topics that we have, but I'm just getting off of football. I'm curious who were some of the more influential teachers or mentors or just helpful people in your life and why? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I mean, obviously my parents had a very big impact on, on who I was and, and shaping my worldview and um, my wife, obviously I, we've been, so I'm 38. We've been dating since I was 17. So um, more than half my life I've been with her and, and, just that constant interaction has greatly shaped who I am as a person. Um, I mean, there's a lot of, I can think of a lot of like lessons that I've learned in life where there are people who maybe I wouldn't even really consider them a role model, but I feel like there are things that I could learn from them, um, whether positive examples or negative examples. And, and um, I, I tend to view my life more that way as, as a series of lessons that I learned. Um, you know, when I was a kid, um, I was on a message board for a video game, Diablo 2, which was not really known for, like, the most healthy attitudes. It was kind of a toxic <laughs> video game. It kind of inspired a lot of toxicity. Sure. And, um, you know, I played a lot. I posted a lot, and they made me a, a moderator. And um, some guy said something. I don't even know what. But it, I, I thought it was, like, out of line. And I just went, like, full blast at, on him and, and said, you know, like, basically public dressing down. And then one of the um, administrators of the board pulled me aside and said something to the effect of like, like, what's your preferred outcome here? Like, okay, he said this thing, you think that's out of line, like, what's the preferred resolution you get? Um, and I'm like, I don't know, maybe he doesn't act that way. And he said, Okay, now, do you think that the way that you approach that situation is going to get you to your preferred outcome? And I thought about it, I'm like, No, now he's going to be petulant. Now he's going to be, you know, like kicking back. And now everybody's going to be on his side, because I was over the top. And, and he's like, it, you can live your life doing what you want to do, or you can live your life doing the things that will result in your life being the life you want, right? Like, it's not about, you need to think a lot more tactically about your actions. It's not about what's going to feel good in the moment. It's about what's going to produce the desired outcome here. Um, and it was, uh, you know, I never even knew the guy's name. Um, yeah. But it was one of those lessons that always stuck with me that it's not about what feels good. You know, it like when my kids are being jerks and they're being annoying like of course i, I want to be like like just go away and never come back i just don't want to deal with you right now right but i know that like okay if i take the time right now and i like calm myself down and i like patiently explain what's going on and why that's bad and i work with them i know i'm gonna have to deal with this less in the future 
And so uh, that, I mean, that was always the big lesson, I think, to me that I took away. Um, and it's, I view my life kind of as, as, as a lot of similar lessons to that. And, and some of them harder earned, some of them easier earned. Some of them should have been easy, but I wasn't paying attention. So it, it took a little bit of um, convincing. Yeah, I can see that. that's interesting. And I, and I think that's a, that's a, it's fascinating where we learn those lessons or where we remember those lessons. Cause I think sometimes too, the, the, you bring that up very well is that sometimes the lessons we learn can come from what not to do from what we've seen from people and they can serve as kind of a barometer for how not to behave. And, and I've certainly had a number of those in my life. I've had a number of, we all do, but I've, I found that I've recognized it was at first easier for me to recognize those scenarios as opposed to recognizing who was offering me positive gems, you know, that I should, that I should take from that. Um, and that was kind of the first, cause some, you know, it's, it's a, it's kind of discerning where you're where your range of, um, you know, healthy, unhealthy behaviors are. And I think that are what's good and what's bad. And if you, and sometimes there are you, I know for me, I had learned that that spectrum was confusing. I couldn't tell which end of what spectrum was what, and I had to. And so the first thing that I had to learn was to recognize what wasn't positive. And then once I could kind of get a, a better view of what, of what unhealthy was and understood that it was much easier to, to head towards the healthier side. Um, though sometimes, you know, if you, if, if it was confusing in the first place to know which one, which, which direction, you know, certain things you were seeing or experiencing were you, um, you're going to make mistakes trying to figure out you know, trying to untangle that sometimes. So I think that, um, you know, from that standpoint, that was always worthwhile. And I think part of that for me was learning things from, you know, the idea frame of reference. What are, you know, what are the, what's the experience level, the motivations, the potential motivations or perspectives that people are coming from when they are trying to influence you or trying to dictate, um, you know, dictate what it is that they want to see done that involves you. Um, and I've always found, I've always found that whole idea frame of reference to be very helpful. And then also just the same thing for you, the idea of what's a, the blowback of it in a sense, you know, trying to think, you know, trying to consider what could the potential outcome be for what actions I, I decide to take and, and what is that, what is that blowback? And sometimes that was just from learning from history. Like I, I'll, those two things I learned from a, really from a history class in high school with a teacher that I had who, um, was just very good at talking about these, these, um, broader concepts and using historical situations to do it like whether it was you know the korean conflict you know and and having us replay a game a board game that recreated the that was kind of to scale of of the each country had certain they were you know they weren't named but they were countries that had certain geographical relationships resources and then they let you kind of play out what would happen everybody with each person representing a country. And then we'd sit there and discuss that and then talk about the higher level idea of, well, this is a model for what happened in the Korean conflict in terms of each of the countries. They, they, they're really thinly disguised for, you know, for the U S for Russia, for North South Korea, for China and, and with the resources that they have and the political leanings that they have, this is how these things would play out. And then we'd, we'd talk about some of the broader concepts with that. And I just enjoyed, you know, I think doing something like that and seeing how on maybe a macro level things play out and then being able to tie that to what your life is about 
and and the same concept how to approach things with similar concepts of like how to look at the world really proved very helpful yeah i had a great high school history teacher too and she was i mean like she wasn't overt about it but like over time we kind of get hints that she was like i mean she was like like a real muckraker in the 60s like she was um going to all the protests and she was like crazy burning flags and everything but it didn't really come through through the pedagogy but she did a really good job of um impressing on me that like everybody has a perspective that like it's easy to evaluate everything that's going on from your perspective but then when you put yourself in somebody else's perspective it looks completely different right it's not that that I am the source of all rationality and everything that I don't understand is, is this irrational thing. They should just be as rational as I am. It's that you have different actors with different goals and they're making moves that are rational with respect to their, their experience and their goals. And it's creating this conflict. It's not that there's necessarily bad people. It's that they're just coming from foreign value systems. Um, and so that was also a really useful one. And that was a fun class for me as well. Yeah, I'm. For me, I think the, the enjoyable classes for me were history and literature, and I was a literature major in school, um, and it, it was very helpful to just explore character, to explore what were the the motivations of people, and to 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 gain some understanding about um, different ideas of how people behave. You know, because good fiction good good literature good fiction often are very good um portraits of true to life character behavior um not always but but often enough and and you see you know, because people you know good good writers tend to capture what's true about life even some of the more you know out there scenarios that you can find in terms of plot in terms of worlds that are created um, you can still see a lot of that in there um, so I always found those to be helpful um, I'm just curious you know I saw you I saw your your I was you know kind of stalking your Twitter feed this week you know just seeing and and one of the things that I saw was you had seen something that Steph Stradley had um, posted um, over at um, Houston Chronicle she had posted something on her Twitter feed about Elvira, the mistress of the dark. I grew up watching Elvira, um, hosting some of the crazy movies that, that would be on TV, um, when I was a teen. And, and I, and I also just, I'll always remember Elvira because I think of one of the worst dives that I ever performed in, in Miami. Um, and it was a and it was a place that had Elvira with the Coors Light poster on the wall. Um, you know, for some reason, I just laughed about it because it was like a, it was a. Um, we were playing like salsa merengue gigs in Miami at like two or three o'clock in the morning, and it was one of these places that like literally once you got once you got in your car, you wanted to you wanted to make sure you turned down the right street to leave because if you turned down the wrong street, you could see within about bad neighborhoods are always this way bad neighbor i've had conversations with lots of people about this is bad neighborhoods you you pull into a bad neighborhood at any time of day or night and you pull into to the wrong street and from 50 yards away they see your car they start gathering in the street they start to come out in the street because they recognize you don't look familiar what are you doing here um kind of behavior and i I learned very, fortunately, I learned very early on that if you start to see people come out and walk into the street and you're like, doesn't matter how far away you are, it's a good idea to make a U-turn and go the opposite direction and just turn away and go, oops, my bad, you know, but that neighborhood I always laugh about. But the, the thing about Elvira, what was interesting is just talking about learning how to be herself. And, and I thought that it was a, it was kind of a fascinating topic because I think for some people they might go well that's easy um some people would say it's extremely difficult to to do where where did you stand or where do you stand on learning to be yourself yeah so i didn't have much choice in the matter because i tried being someone else and i just failed so badly <laughs> um 
<laughs> I'm curious. I would. I, I'm almost. I would love just because I know you and I and I admire you and I like you. I would love to know what that, um, who that person was that you tried to be and you're oh, like, yeah. it doesn't Oh yeah, I mean fit. so. So I grew up. I mean I don't know. Um, this might come as news. Um, I'm a pretty smart guy. Um, I've always <laughs> been a pretty smart guy. I don't really say that like. It's not really like conceited. That's just like you know, if you're a tall guy, it's you're a, a tall fact. guy. Yeah. You didn't do anything to do it, but like. Yeah. A guy who's six foot ten knows he's tall. Um, it's not really like a point of pride. It's just, and I, I think our society places way too much e um, emphasis on intelligence. Uh, it's kind of another uh, side topic. But I, I grew up very smart, um, where there were like a lot of expectations. Not, not like malicious expectations. Just people expected a lot. You know, my parents would joke that their retirement plan was I was going to do something and get rich and then I would fund their retirement. And it was, I knew it was a joke. They're very frugal. They were saving, they were making good decisions, but that was kind of the, the background expectation. And I sure. knew at all times that I didn't really know what I was going on to do, but it was going to be big and it was going to be significant and it was going to make me a lot of money. And um, and that was the expectation. And I, I invested a lot of my identity in that just because, you know, I thought, I thought I had to, I thought that was the path that was open to me. And I went on to college and I didn't really know what I wanted to do. Um, I was looking at like engineering, maybe a, I, I did a minor in theater just because I liked theater, even though I had no future in it because I'm not, I am not a good enough actor. Um, but it was something fun to do. And then I started having like a series of mental health crises. Um, and I stopped leaving my room for like about a year, um, which kind of makes it difficult to pass classes. You failed out of like everything. Um, and then of course that now I'm spiraling even deeper because for the longest time it was just assumed that I was just going to effortlessly excel at everything. And now that I'm failing, like that uh, all of a sudden my identity's in crisis. If I'm not this, then who am I? Um, and it took me a long time kind of to pull out of that and, and um, eventually the thing that did pull me out of it was just the realization that regardless of what everybody expects me to be, that's not sustainable. I can't be what, I can't be somebody else's idea of what I am. I can only be what I am. Um, and so kind of before, um, I was, I, and I make no secret of it. I was an asshole. Um, I, I thought intelligence was a zero sum game. I, I defined myself by my intelligence and then I had to constantly prove that. I had to prove that I was smarter than everybody else in the room anytime I walked into a room. Um, and it was bad because I usually was. And so that kind of just reinforced that like, yes, this Further is, alienated this is people, yeah. working for me. Yeah. Right. Um, and, and, um, you know, I, I've been with my wife for, for what was it like 21 years now. And so she's been through all this with me and, and in large part, thanks to her support and thanks to her, you know, being a rock. Um, I, I was able to get to a point where I'm like, you know what, like, I don't even care that I'm smart. I don't, I don't want to be a smart person anymore. I want to be a good person. I want to be the type of person that, you know, when I die, people come and eulogize at my funeral and we make it like 15 minutes in before anybody mentions anything about how smart I was. I want that to be like the least notable fact about my existence. Um, and, and so I just reoriented my life about that. And, and I said, you know, okay, I'm not going to be, go on to be rich and be this titan of industry and invent some amazing gadget or find some cure for some incurable disease. And that's okay. I'm a good father. I'm a good husband. I live a good life. Um, you know, we're, we're financially stable. Um, this is the life I want for myself and I'm, I'm absolutely okay with this life and, and being okay with the life I have makes it a lot easier to be a good person to other people. Cause what's the saying that hurt people hurt people. Um, and so, yeah, it, it was a long journey. Um, just finding myself and, and finding myself was pretty quick being okay with who I was that, that took a while that took a lot of grappling. Um, but I'm in, I'm in a good pot. I'm in a good place now. And I'm, I'm happy that I went through that journey, even though I did not enjoy it at the time. Yeah. That's, that's a, that's not an easy journey to take. And it's, um, and I can relate to some of that. Um, and I would definitely say, well, you know, one is, you know, we're happy you're there and, and here's to, here's to getting to know that you can, and hopefully 
it, based on life expectancies that we at least see that you that the majority of your life will be in this in that space as opposed to the space that you had come out of that took you a while to come out of um you know and and the, the longer that time comes the more i don't know for me at least the more gratitude i feel from that perspective because while i and i think that the way you sum that up talking about you know i'm an intelligent person i know that it's just like saying i i wear a size 11 and a half shoe you know it's just a fact it's not a it, you know it, it's just the way things are i think people the as you start to get more experience and perspective in life you kind of know things about yourself like when i met my wife you know we would talk about what are things that you you know what could you what would you tell me about yourself that you know is true you know and and it and that's um you know i could i remember you know saying to her there were like three things i knew that i felt like these are three things i know that i'm good at you know that these are you know as a person and i don't see it as bragging i just see it as these are based on life experience and what i've seen with outcomes these are these are those things and i know that know these things about myself and you know one of those things was you know try you know having really good intentions to try and be um you know a helpful person in a, a like a good nurturing kind of person with some with some boundaries you know who was gonna you know you know you know whether you say it's i'm a good human being i i find that when people spend too much time leading with that they're usually anything but um but that's the you know at the end of the day that's the type of thing that i strive you know i think i strive for that and i think that when it comes to interpersonal relationships i've tended to have more success than failure with that um i think it's i think it's useful for me personally to think of it as like good is not something that I am. Good is something that I do. Good is something yeah. that I choose. And it's something that I can very easily stop to stop yes. choosing to do. Or if I'm not intentional about it, like not even intentionally, just stop doing good. Um, and it's I think it's helpful not there are things about me that are intrinsic and there are things about me that are that are choices and the result of choices I make. And I, I always try to put like I am someone who does good in the choices camp. Um, cause I know it's uh, from experience. I know I'm not intrinsically good. I have done like, I was an asshole. There's yeah. no secret about it. Ask anybody who knew me from 20 years ago and they can confirm. It's not like I'm intrinsically inherently good. It's, I am somebody who's striving and working my best to make good choices. The people I most admire tend to have that perspective though. The people I most admire, some folks I know have done some really awful things on other people when they were younger um and had to learn and they and they learned that good is a choice and one of my favorite characters like just we tie it back to something that's more like fiction is i was i was i've always been a big fan of the western unforgiven with that clint eastwood made um because when you look at his character um he was you know he was this in this world where they try to demystify the idea of gunfighting to to show the realistic part of it which is that all the lore and stories are bullshit and that um it's hard to actually shoot somebody half the time they're drunk and there's and you never know what's going to happen the gun blows up in their faces they misfire and they got killed over something doing something stupid and all of that and this guy William Money is this you know for people who've never seen the the movie is this mythologized badass of a awful human being who's killed all these people and was great at killing people and he gets hired to basically um to to be a bounty hunter along with a, a couple other um people and you find out that he's actually the real deal of all the stories like all the stories are true about him whereas everybody else is like they're they're not true they're not completely true they're not um as accurate and his were actually actually even more more um he was actually more of a badass than even the stories would say um and 
But what I found interesting about him is that he had left that life. He was a parent when you see the story and he's, he seems like nothing like the person that they're mythologizing him to be. And what you kind of learn to, I, I thought was always a great take insight from that character study was that people who are capable of great doing great good and living good lives are also capable of great evil and that they know, and they also know it's a switch. It's literally can be a lever that it's a mechanism that they can, that the same people who have the discipline and the perspective to, to, to behave in a way that they're helpful and a light in the world and, and positive also understand that there's that other side and that they, sometimes they have that capacity, capacity to behave in that fashion and go down that lane knowingly and willfully and have the discipline to do it. And it's, I don't know if I'd say it's admirable, but it's, but it tells you that sometimes when it comes down to it, behavior comes down to discipline and perspective and, and the people who are capable of both ends of that, uh, that equation or that spectrum, often it comes down to that central, um, central tenet of like, or, or factor of having, you know, real discipline on a certain level to do things and and the things that we admire people for their discipline uh, that their discipline that they admire them for doing sometimes you can in, sometimes you could be horrified by the things that they could do because of the sh the their ability to approach it approach the the opposite behavior um with the same core set of behaviors yeah, it's like the old parable that every man has two wolves inside of him, and one is good and one is evil, and they're they're in constant battle. You know, which one wins? It's the one you feed. Yeah, yeah. Well, hopefully, this fed you in a positive way. Um, we certainly um, enjoy getting a chance to have these conversations on a weekly basis, and we hope that you enjoyed it. You can certainly subscribe to this podcast at Matt Waldman's RSP cast. You can find Adam Harstad at football guys. You can find his great work. Also, um, just seeing some of the fun stuff that I see each week on Twitter at Adam Harstad. Um, and of course you can find me at Matt Waldman on Twitter and at football guys, as well as the rookie scouting portfolio, Matt Waldman's RSP. Um, and you can really look up Matt Waldman's RSP on Twitter on, um, YouTube or TikTok, and you'll find me there too. Um, so thanks again for listening. We appreciate you and have an awesome week.